would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to read verses 8 through 16 this morning. All right, so I promise I am tying this into Palm Sunday, and I think it's going to make a lot of sense when we do. But you have to bear with me because this is his final argument in the epistle to the Hebrews, and I think the most powerful one uh, that helps us to see why we stand in Christ alone. So pay very careful attention because he's going to throw a lot of theology at you in a very short period of time with a great application in the end. I hope you see it. Um, Hear the word of the Lord, Hebrews 13, beginning of verse 8. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you asking that you would give us the very manna from heaven, the, the, the words of life as we open the Bibles that you have given to us, our copies of God's Word. Lord, that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to see Christ. Help us to pattern our lives upon the gospel of Christ. And Lord, help us to apply this gospel in every way to how we live now and the hope that we have for the future and our eternal inheritance that is given to us as a free gift through the gospel of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On his return home from a victorious military expedition in Greece, King Xerxes had boarded a Phoenician ship with a number of his Persian troops heading home, and all of a sudden a terrible storm came upon them, Captain of the ship told King Xerxes that there would be no hope for the ship to make it unless the load of the ship was substantially lightened. So the king turned to his Persian soldiers standing on deck and said to them, it is on you that my safety depends. Now let some of you show regard for your king. And immediately you had a number of men come before him, bow before his presence, and then throw themselves overboard. Substantially lightened, the ship did make it safely to harbor, and upon his arrival to the palace, King Xerxes ordered that a golden crown be given to the pilot of that ship for preserving the life of the king. But as soon as he was thus 
crowned, he then ordered that that same Pilate be beheaded for causing the death of his Persian soldiers. Of course, unlike King Xerxes, who demanded the lives of his men in order to preserve his own life, it's not hard to see the contrast with King Jesus, who laid down his own life for the sake of his brothers as a fragrant offering and sacrifice unto God. And it's in our text this morning that the question is asked by the author to his hearers, but also to the detractors of the Christian faith, what sort of sacrifice could possibly be acceptable as an offering unto God now that the Lord Jesus has offered himself freely, shedding his own blood for our sakes as the perfect Passover lamb? All throughout this epistle to the Hebrews, if you've been paying attention, the author has been reminding his audience again and again of Christ's role as our great high priest, one who was so much better than Aaron and Moses and all that came before him, one who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, the only acceptable sacrifice in the eyes of God, and who then sat down at the right hand of the Father, proving that his sacrifice was pleasing to God, and it was finished. It has been paid for fully by his blood, by his death. And, and because a, a number of the people who were the recipients of this letter had come from a Jewish background, had come out of the Hebrew uh, culture, uh, you can imagine how hard it would be for them now transitioning into the culture of Christianity in which no longer did you participate in any temple sacrifices, especially at this time of year, at the large feast that the Jews would be holding. Uh, in our daily devotions this week, as, as David mentioned earlier, uh, we've been studying uh, the Psalms of Ascent, uh, we think of Psalms 120 through Psalm 134. These are the very songs that the Jews would sing on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate these great feasts. And, and as David mentioned, Psalm 122, one of the ones that they sang that came from the very mouth of David reads this way, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. But now, for these Jews who have professed faith in Christ, there's no longer any need for them to go into the courts of the temple in Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices, for Christ has finished the work. He has paid the price. It is all done. He's already paid for their sins in full. Nevertheless, you can imagine having grown up in a Jewish culture, that sort of sense of nostalgia, right? Going with your family to the temple at least three times a year, these major feasts, you would go on a pilgrimage. If you lived in some other part of the nation or even outside of the nation of Israel, you would go on a long pilgrimage with your people to celebrate these great feasts. And, and you can imagine even your best friends from your Jewish background would, would point out to you how you're missing it. You're missing all the fun. And additionally, you're missing 
out on the grace and forgiveness that supposedly was still offered through these old order sacrifices. But that's the very danger that the author of Hebrews has been warning these fledgling Christians against from chapter 1. Do not turn back to the old ways, he says. For if you turn back, you're turning away from Christ back to the shadows that have now all become obsolete with Christ's sacrifice. It's finished. Then in addition to the disappointment of friends and family, you can imagine these young Christians also were facing the mockery of their enemies who were pointing out the fact that they didn't have a special temple to worship in. They didn't have any holy sacrifices to offer like the Jews did. And therefore, how possibly could they be pleasing in God's sight? They were excluded. Of course, soon enough, the Jews wouldn't have this either, for the temple and all of its furnishings would burn to the ground within just a few years. 70 A.D., the Romans would burn it all. But this is a testimony to the fact that at the time of this writing, it's still standing and so you can see why the writer of Hebrews is constantly talking about the better priesthood of Christ, the better altar of Christ, the better sacrifice of Christ, because he's dealing with these people who are still holding on to the old ways of the temple. And now this author's final comments, he's contrasting Christian worship to the old order worship of the Jews in two very distinct ways. And these are the two that I want to point out to you this morning. They're, they're pretty obvious, but I don't know if we've meditated upon them enough. I think you'll see that as we understand what he's saying here, it's going to open up even more doors of praise and wonder of our God. Here are the two ways that are distinct and different. First, Christians are not called to worship God in the temple in Jerusalem anymore. Second, Christians are not called to offer any more bloody sacrifices unto God. Now, we know that, but I want to explain why more fully. Let's start with number one. Christians are not called to worship God in a temple in Jerusalem, not now, not ever. Earlier this morning, we, we read from Leviticus chapter 16, which is the original Day of Atonement that points forward to the, the, the full Day of Atonement that we find in Christ Jesus. And as David pointed out to you, there, there are two goats that were offered on that particular day. One you could call the sacrificial offering, if you will, the one whose blood was shed in order to make atonement for Israel. The other goat was known more as a scapegoat, the one upon whom the Israelites would place all of their sin, confess their sin upon this goat through the mediation of the priest, and then that goat would be sent outside the temple, outside of Jerusalem, to sort of symbolize how the sins of Israel were being taken away from them as far as the east is from the west. And in both cases, even though the blood of the former goat was brought into the temple to cleanse the temple, both bodies of both goats had to be taken outside of the city, outside of Jerusalem, outside of the presence of a holy God in order to be disposed of properly in order that God might be pleased with them. 
Now, what the author of Hebrews is drawing out for us in this passage can be seen more fully in verse 12. There he says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem, if you will, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. If you remember when the Romans crucified Jesus, they didn't crucify him in the temple. They didn't crucify him within the city precincts. They crucified him at Golgotha, which is just outside of the city of Jerusalem on a hill, just outside. And the author is saying that this outlying location of Jesus' sacrifice was what the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 was pointing to all along. That the goat had to be taken outside of the city in order to be acceptable in God's sight, in order that God's wrath might be poured out upon him. That he might bear the penalty of our sin. Which proves what the author is saying. That salvation itself can never occur within the temple precincts. It has to occur outside of the temple, outside of the Judaistic ceremonial law. It never occurred within the temple itself. In fact, if you think about it as it's being described in Leviticus 16, the whole point of these sacrifices brought into the temple, the blood, was to cover the temple itself, to anoint the altar itself because the temple was not clean. The altar itself was not pure. It too was full of uncleanness. Something had to come upon the temple to cleanse it. The temple itself was not clean. It never was. It never would be. It has to point to something greater than the temple. And that's what the author of Hebrews is pointing out to us from the beginning, someone who is greater than the temple has now come, that these goats were pointing to from the beginning. The author of Hebrews is exhorting his people then to join Jesus outside of the temple, outside of Jerusalem, outside of those old order sacrifices, even though outsiders were generally frowned upon by the Jews. He's saying one must become an outsider in order to be acceptable in God's sight. The church is outside of Jerusalem. It's not a part of the temple complex. It's not a part of the nation of Israel. In fact, it's not a part of any nation. Sometimes we often wrap up the church with the United States. It's not an American body. It's an international body all over the world that supersedes any political entity that we can think of. It's something much, much greater than that. And the author is saying that one must leave behind all of these old ceremonies, all of these old sacrifices that always pointed to Christ. But now that Christ has come, there's no need for them anymore. Verse 13, he says, Therefore let us go to him, that is to Jesus, outside of the camp of Israel, and bear the reproach that he endured. In other words, just as Jesus bore shame and humiliation and mockery as he was hanging on the cross for our sins. He says, so every Christian, especially those Jews who had professed faith in Christ, would experience that same sense of being an outsider, that same sense of reproach that's brought upon them. In fact, uh, the, the author of Hebrews, by mentioning this at this point, he's sort of harkening back to Hebrews 11, if you remember when he's talking about Moses, how Moses 
agreed to go along with the Jews, to be mistreated along with the people of God, considering, he says, the reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to a greater reward. But this time, it's interesting, he's, he's not telling us to identify with the Israelites as the people of God, but rather those whom the Israelites have rejected. To identify with the body of Christ, to identify with those who have made the same profession in Christ Jesus. It's not the Egyptians now who are disparaging the Jews, but the Jews who are disparaging the Christians. We now are the ones who are considered to be unclean, outsiders. And anyone who would follow Christ outside of the Jewish camp would now bear that same shame, reproach. And he's saying what you're very concerned about, what you're worried about, about being mocked and, and ridiculed and persecuted, he's saying this comes along with it. Just as Christ experienced it, so will you. So, so the author is, is purposely pitting, that you have to notice this, he's pitting the cross against the old camp of Israel. And he's pitting the old city of Jerusalem with the new city of the new Jerusalem, those who are citizens in God's heavenly kingdom. He's showing a, a vast distinction between these two. Verse 14, here we have no lasting city, that means here on earth, but we seek the city that is to come. And, and that explains why on Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus comes in with such great fanfare, but he didn't seek to become the king of that city. If you think about it, all of the palm branches being waved back and forth, all of those coats and, and palms laying on the road to usher in this Messiah king that they have been looking for all this time, they were ecstatic. They were singing over and over again, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blesses the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna and the highest they were anticipating him coming in to take the city, to proclaim his kingship. But he does nothing of the sort because he was looking to a different city altogether. He was not looking to the earthly city of Jerusalem. And so Mark tells us in his gospel that after entering the city with such fanfare, he doesn't go to the palace he doesn't enter into the courts of Pilate, the Roman governor. He has nothing to do with Herod's kingship. After all the, the horrible, he doesn't make any grand speeches. He doesn't make any political statements whatsoever. He doesn't challenge anyone's authority in that regard. But rather, he, he, all he does that first day, when he comes into the city, according to Mark's gospel, he goes into the outside of the temple courts where the Gentile area is, and he looks around. And then he goes home, back to Bethany. Again, so all of this emotional buildup has been happening. Ready, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? He just goes home. He comes back the next day, and you're like, okay, well, now he's going to do it. Now he's going to go in, he's going to be anointed as king by the high priest, and he's going to be proclaimed to be the king. But when he goes to the temple, he doesn't go into the inner precincts of the temple. He doesn't meet with the priest at all. He stays in the outer courts where only the Gentiles are supposed to be, where instead of the Gentiles praying as it was called to be a house of prayer for all nations, instead, he sees all these money changers causing a havoc with all of their tables of money and all those animals that are being sold for a profit. And immediately, 
He's ministering to the outsiders. He's making a way for those outside of the Jerusalem system to come in to know the salvation that will come through His name alone. In the same manner, instead of entering the courts of the temple, pronouncing His blessings upon the sacrifices, His blessing upon the priest, He has nothing to do with that temple whatsoever. Rather, he goes outside of the temple immediately after seeing this, and he goes and he curses a fig tree. What in the world? Why is he cursing a fig tree? Because the fig tree represents the fruitlessness of the nation of Israel and the fruitlessness of all of those sacrifices that they have committed in hypocrisy and not out of love for the Lord. He curses it. And then immediately... He pronounces prophetically the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and its temple. He said, all of it will be torn down. All of it. It will be gone. So when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem on that day, even though the people had great expectations of Him coming into the holiest of cities, He wants nothing to do with it. Because that's not the city He's seeking. Contrary to what you may have been taught, even we as Christians are not looking or anticipating that the old city of Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. That the old temple in Jerusalem is going to be reconstructed. For as Jesus shared with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, it was never meant to be on this mountain or that mountain in Samaria or in Jerusalem, or any other place. He says, rather, the hour has come when all true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth all across the world. Here's, let me give you a very brief biblical theological lesson in terms of temple imagery. Originally, the temple was in heaven, right? The first manifestation of the temple that we have in Scripture is actually in the Garden of Eden. It's not just a garden. It is the very holy presence of God in the midst of Adam and Eve. And we see that because later on, when the tabernacle is built, it's mimicked on the same imagery that we see in the Garden of Eden. We see the same palms. We see the same cherubim that you see in the Garden of Eden. It is a continuation, if you will, that God is now restoring His presence again on earth. So we go from this Garden of Eden, then we get to the tabernacle, but then the tabernacle is superseded by the temple, right? But then the temple itself is superseded by Christ. He is the very temple of God who has come to earth. He is the very presence of God. When you're in His presence, you are in the presence of God. But then even that is expanded to where now the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven and fills up every believer and the gathering of believers together you have entered the very presence of God as you've entered this room. Not when you're here all by yourself. It's just a gem otherwise. You can see the basketball goals. But when you enter the very presence of your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have entered the presence of God because the Holy Spirit indwells us. But that's not the end though. You see, this temple imagery continues to expand to where when Christ comes back to earth, to claim it all as His. The way it describes the new temple, the new heavens and earth coming down to earth, 
is that now the, the new city of the new Jerusalem is pictured as a cube in the exact same way as the Holy of Holies is, is described as a cube, a perfect cube, to symbolize that all the earth will be the temple of God. So you have to understand that what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is do not look back to the old ways. That old building in Jerusalem, it means nothing now. Right now, there's a Muslim mosque that sits on the temple site. Now, I know some of you have been taught otherwise, but I'm trying to tell you the writer of Hebrews is saying you will never, ever go back to that temple mound ever again unless you just want to visit to see it. I've seen it. But you'll never go back there and no Jewish person who ever professes faith in Christ will ever need to go there ever again. Why? Because it's finished. Christ has done it all. He has paid the penalty for our sins in full. You never need to go back to that way ever again. God's people are, are never required to go back to Jerusalem three times a year. They would have to go there and make those special sacrifices. And, and so now, even when we study the songs of ascent and we sing the songs of ascent, we're not speaking of the old Jerusalem. We're singing of the new Jerusalem that is in Christ Jesus Luke chapter 24, Jesus says all of these psalms, including the songs of ascent, they were all about Him. All about Him. Never about that earthly building, but always about Him. So when we speak of, of God's people being on a pilgrimage to Mount Zion, we're not talking about uh, Christians traveling from America across the Atlantic Ocean through Africa or through Europe to get to Israel. We're talking about all those who are on their way to the heavenly city, to Mount Zion. Because that's our destiny. To be in God's presence forever. Of course, we haven't reached that heavenly city yet, though. And so the writer of Hebrews makes it very plain that when we gather together as Christ's church, that was Hebrews chapter 12, he's pointing out to us, when we gather together as Christ's church, we are gathering together in the very presence of God. This is the house of our God. And we meet with Christ here in a very mysterious way. We even meet with the, 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 the spirits of the departed saints here. We meet with the angels here as we're gathered together in the name of Jesus. We, when two or three are gathered together, we are in the very presence of God. This is the house of the Lord. We never need to go back to Jerusalem ever again. And so even when we're taught to pray, now this part might bother you a little bit. I'm just trying to be consistent with Scripture. When we're taught to pray for the peace of Jerusalem in Psalm 122, we're not praying for the old Jerusalem. We're praying for the new Jerusalem. For the body of Christ all around the world. I was just sharing with someone just here, earlier this morning, I just started reading a, uh, the introductory chapter of a book about the new Christendom around the world. And in that book, what it's explaining is that in 1900, I don't know if you knew this or not, but pretty much close to 90% of all Christian churches were either in Europe or in North America. 90%. It's a very small piece of land for churches to be. But since that time, there are more churches in Africa and Asia and South America than anywhere in Europe, North America. The church is continuing to expand and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. His temple is only growing like the mustard seed. The parable of the kingdom, it's only growing, you see. 
It will not be stopped. The gates of hell will not stand against it. And so when we talk about praying for the peace of Jerusalem, we're talking about praying for the peace of our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. In fact, it says that specifically in Psalm 122, for the sake of our brothers and companions, we pray for its peace. But who are our brothers and sisters? Who does Jesus say his brothers and sisters are? Those who profess his name and seek to do the will of the Father. Not those who just grew up in a particular bloodline. He's praying for the peace of all those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now certainly, I, I want to I state this very clearly. Uh, this is not a what I would call a complete replacement theology of the church replacing Israel. No, it's a grafting in of the Gentiles into Israel and a grafting in of Israel into uh, the Gentiles as well. Uh, Romans 10, listen to what Paul says in reference to the Jews. He says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul, throughout Romans 9-11, through 11, is seeing this glorious picture of a great influx of Israelites coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And he's praying for that. And that's what we ought to be praying for as well. But when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're not praying for some political entity right now that exists in a particular plot of land in Asia. We are praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world who know the one true God and who have not rejected Jesus Christ. When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we are praying for that new Jerusalem that already there are outposts of New Jerusalem here, all throughout Michigan, all throughout the world. This is the new covenant. And that's why we as Christians, we don't need to go to Jerusalem anymore. Again, it's fun to see. A bunch of old rocks. Um, most of it's uh, quite commercial, actually. It's hard, to, it's hard to see a lot in Israel because you have so many so many Catholic buildings that are covering up the places that's hard to see what, what really happened there anymore. But ultimately, you want to see Christ? Go to church. Go to church. That's where you see Christ. In His people. That's number one. Number two, why then are Christians called not to offer any more blood sacrifices unto God? You know the answer, but I want, I want, to, I want you to hear his argument. Verse 10, the author says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now what started this whole conversation were some of the, what you might call Judaizers coming into the church who were suggesting that these Christian Hebrews, so those who were Jews who had come to faith in Christ, how they should now be excluded from even wanting to participate in these old order sacrifices and festivals because of the unclean foods that they were now eating, the unclean animals that they were now eating. If you remember in Acts chapter 10, I think it was when Peter sees the vision of the sheet being lowered down from heaven and, 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 and God tells him, eat, you know, kill and eat. And so now Peter and, and all those others who were Jews who had come to faith in Christ are now eating what used to be considered unclean foods because now in Christ all things have been declared to be clean. Of course, the legalistic Judaizers are wanting to put a stop to that, to put an end to the new freedoms that they have in Christ Jesus and are telling them that in order to be acceptable in God's sight, you have to continue to follow the old law. But if you remember, Jesus taught that it doesn't matter what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of it that matters. In the same way, the writer of Hebrews says, verse 9, 
The heart is strengthened only by grace and not by special foods which never benefit those who devote themselves to it by mere outward regulations. Therefore, as Paul says, pay no regard to these teachings, no regard to these false professors who are passing judgment on you in regards to food and drink and other festivals that the Israelites used to keep. It has nothing to do with you. None. For food will neither condemn you nor commend you unto God. Food is just food. That's all it is. Food can help your stomach. It can't help your soul. It's the grace of God that helps your soul. Paul says in Romans 14, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not food that brings us close to God, but fellowship with Christ that brings us close to God. And when we forget that, and we try to follow some outward rule or or regulation, we've lost sight of the Gospel. It's all about abiding in Christ, not trying to do something to earn your way back into God's favor. He's already given it. So the, the author of Hebrews is not concerned at all about eating clean or unclean foods because he has no desire whatsoever to go back to the temple and even though he has easy access to get there, he wants nothing to do with it. Again, verse 10, he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now let me say very plainly that when he's referring to an altar here, he is not referring to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice. I've had many people, pretty much every Presbyterian church I've ever been in, someone always comes up to me eventually and asks me, why do you never give an altar call? And I tell them, because we don't have an altar. We have no need for an altar. There is no altar. When we come and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which I don't know where the table is at this moment, but it's usually up here. It's over there. It now has bells on it. The reason why we call it the Lord's Tables, because that's what the Scripture calls it. We don't call it an altar, because an altar by definition requires that we have to give something to God to earn God's favor. At the Lord's Table, we give nothing to God. He gives it all to us as a free gift from God. Salvation is all of grace and not of works. And so, What he tells us to do, he says, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. What does he tell us to do? Let us keep the feast. It doesn't say let us offer some other sacrifice in addition to that, but rather just keep the feast. Instead of going to some feast in Jerusalem, we have a feast here right in the church in which we are celebrating the fact that Christ has done it all. He's finished it all. By his shed blood, he has cleansed us of every sin. Let us celebrate the feast can't miss that and so this the altar that he's talking about is not the lord's table the lord's table is merely a celebration of what has already taken place the altar is the cross itself that resided just outside of jerusalem just outside of the judaistic ceremonies it's christ's sacrifice once and for all that makes us acceptable unto God. The altar that the author is referring to is only the cross and only that one time. Those men who still served in the old camp, the old ceremonial laws in Israel, they have no right 
to partake of the feast of the sacrifice of Christ because they do not discern the body and blood of Christ that He has finished it. He has finished it all. But it's precisely because Christ has shed His own blood for the forgiveness of sins that we do not offer any more bloody sacrifices unto God. There's no more blood that we can shed. His blood is perfect. His blood is pleasing to God's sight. Because Christ has taken away all our sin, all of our guilt, and bearing God's wrath on the cross, there's no need for any new sin offerings, any new guilt offerings, any new attempt by man to please God by bringing some sort of physical affliction or torture upon ourselves. It will not make God happy. What makes God happy is the life of His Son. He has done it all. There's nothing more that we can give that God has not already freely given us in Jesus. And therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. He accepts you completely, fully, freely through the blood of Christ. But does that mean that there are no longer any more sacrifices then for Christians? No. And that's a resounding no. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. It doesn't mean that at all. For even in the Old Testament, there were other types of sacrifices that were not strictly regulated by the law of God and did not require any shedding of blood. Now these types of sacrifices are what we would often refer to as free will offerings and were, were always based upon the greatest of God's commands. To love God with all your heart all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what he's referring to in verses 15 and 16. He's showing you what does God require of you now that Christ has paid it all. Verse 15, he starts with that first of the greatest commands. The author says, through him, that is through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. It's interesting. He's actually quoting from the Old Testament in Hosea chapter 14, verse 2 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And there, if I were to translate it into English, would say something like this, let us come to the Lord in repentance, not with the blood of bulls, but literally, he says instead, with the calves of our lips. That's a strange statement. But in other words, he said, instead of shedding a dead animal to be acceptable in God's sight, Now that God has paid the penalty for our sin, let us offer to Him not a dead animal, but our very lives as the calves of our lips, as an offering of praise, or what sometimes is also referred to as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. An offering of praise, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It it always amazes me at this time of year, and again, I didn't grow up in a Catholic background, I grew up in a Baptist background. so I didn't come from the same, but it always amazes me, no matter what tradition you are, there, there's always some in the church that are trying to teach you, well, we need to make some special sacrifices this time of year. We need to deprive ourselves of chocolate, which makes no sense because most people have chocolate at Easter, right? We need to not just deprive ourselves of chocolate, but I, I need to only eat fish on Fridays. I need to do something to show that I can earn something from God. Now, I know not everybody does it for that reason. I know some people do it for probably better reasons than that. But that's not what the Lord wants from us. 
Not to just merely to deprive ourselves of something. What God wants from us is our heart. Not what we give up, but what we give to Him. I mean, it's, it's similar to the concept of the Lord's Day, the Sabbath Day. It's not merely what I don't do on that day, but it's what I do with my heart to God. Again, this whole legalistic concept is I'm, just, I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to do that, and that's all I have. God doesn't care what you don't do so much as what you do. What does He want from us? He wants us to love Him with all of our hearts. And He wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But in, that, in reference to that first command, I think Paul summarizes this sacrifice of praise very clearly. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18. When you, he wants to summarize the first greatest command. He says there, rejoice always in the Lord. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in every circumstance. He says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The will of God is not merely to give up chocolate or eat fish sandwiches at McDonald's. The will of God is to continually acknowledge the name of Christ in your love for Him, through your praise, through your thanksgiving, through your continual prayers. You're seeking His face through the blood of Christ and only through the blood of Christ. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, not to present some bull to God or some other sacrifice, but rather to present your own bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What God wants from us is us. Not what we give up, but what we give to Him. What He wants us to give to Him is us. Our love. Our time, our admiration, our awe, our wonder, our praise. That's what He wants. But that's not all He wants. In, in reference to the second greatest commandment, verse 16, the author also says this, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are also pleasing to God. Clearly this second command follows the greatest second command of loving your neighbor as yourself, and it makes sense because God doesn't need your good works. What could you possibly add to the works He's already done? God doesn't need you to share anything with Him. He already owns it all. doesn't need your help whatsoever. So why does He make these commands? Because He wants us to love our brothers. He wants us to love our neighbors. To show forth the love of Christ because ultimately that turns back into praise unto Him. That's it. It's interesting though. We find loopholes into not even doing that. Right? We find a reason why not, why not to love our brothers. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus points out the fact that the Pharisees were teaching uh, young men or, or middle-aged men to basically, instead of offering to help their parents in need, to say that they had made a sacrifice in korban, which means I made it for the sacrifice of God. I'm giving it to God instead of to my parents. Never does the law of God ever require you to neglect the love of others in order to love the Lord. You love God by loving others. You share what you have because that is what's pleasing in God's sight. Again, it doesn't matter what you've given up. It matters what you give. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, if I give away everything that I have, what does it matter? He said, even if I deliver my body up to be burned, it doesn't mean anything without love. If I want to 
make a sacrifice unto God. I don't go around burning my body. I don't go around giving away everything that I have, but I, I give it to God in praise, and I give it to God through my love for others. And, it, and what you're giving there is, is really, I mean, it is a sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice of your own making. You're only giving to God what He's given to you. Right? I mean, literally, we're just giving back to God the very gift of grace that He's given to us. If you want to give a sacrifice in this particular season of the year, do it by giving praise to God. Spending time with God. Do it by giving grace to your family members. Loving your brothers. Sharing what you have with those who are suffering and need. James says this is a religion that is pure and undefiled in God's sight. Not those who just give up stuff, but those who give. This is what the early church was well known for. It was by their love that they were known, not by the rules that they kept. Indeed, with Christ's finished work on the cross, there's no longer any need for an altar. There's no longer any need for some self-imposed physical affliction or abstinence from the good gifts of God. That's all legalism. That's all it is. What he wants is the freedom of God through the grace of Christ to love him and to love others. If you want to offer something special to God, offer him that. Offer him that love. I love the way the Puritan Richard Sibbs uh, explained this concept. He says, God knows... We have nothing of ourselves. Therefore, in the covenant of grace, he requires no more than he gives, but gives what he requires and accepts what he gives. Let me repeat that. God, in terms of the sacrifices he expects, God requires no more than he gives, but gives what he requires and accepts what he gives. You don't have to worry about these sacrifices being acceptable unto God because these are the sacrifices that He gives unto us. He gives us the very gift of love in Christ, pouring out the love of God into our hearts through the grace of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. He then requires us to give back that love to Him and then to share that love with our brothers and sisters in Christ. He alone considers that an acceptable sacrifice unto Him. Love Him. He accepts that. Love your brother. He accepts that. Give up chocolate. He doesn't care. He doesn't. I, I, I keep making fun of it, but he doesn't. Eat all the chocolate you want. Nobody cares. It doesn't bring you any closer to God by giving up meat or chocolate or anything else. What brings you closer to God is the love of God and the love for your brothers. As living stones... Peter says in God's temple, we are being built into a spiritual house that replaces the old temple. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. These sacrifices are all hinged upon the love of God in Christ Jesus. These expectations will never change, which is why he points out that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So no matter what any person, I, I, I'm going to tell you this, this time I'm right, okay? This time I'm right. Hold me to this one thing. I'm right on this. If anyone else ever comes up to you and says, you know what, you need to do this in order to be acceptable to God. You need to keep this rule. You need to follow this diet. Follow this special 
routine. It's from the pit of hell. When someone has understood the Gospel of Jesus Christ, there is freedom from all of those rules. All He wants from you then is to learn to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you can do those two things, Jesus says the whole law has been fulfilled. You don't need to follow any more laws, any more rules. So when the Mormons come to your house and try to offer you another book with more rules, you say, i got too many rules as is. The only rule I need to follow is to love God with all my heart, and you're not going to help me with that. Because the freedom that is in Christ Jesus, He gives that to us and then expects us to give it right back to Him. He says, if you do that, if you seek His face, and you follow that noble law of love, He says you will always know what is good and acceptable and perfect in God's sight as you submit yourself unto Christ. Nothing more. Nothing less. Just Christ. Standing firm in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we ask that You would help us to believe more fully in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though many of these truths we've already heard many, many times before, we so quickly forget them. Not only do we forget the forgotten man, we forget Jesus, the most important man, the most important God. Father, we ask that You would continue to help us to remember Christ. Remember what He's done, what He has accomplished, all that He has given of Himself for us that we would then know and, and be willing and eager to give ourselves back to Him and back to each other through the faith that we have in Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. You give to us what You require. and What You require, You accept. Lord, help us to give ourselves as a